Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. As I'm sure you're aware by now, we're working with our partners Kia UK this summer. Kia have been embedded in the world of cricket for almost 15 years. They've actively supported the rise of women's cricket since 2014 and have been the proud sponsors of Surrey County Cricket Club for the last decade. Kia are in fact our very own neighbours here at the Kia Oval, the home of Surrey County Cricket Club. During each episode of the podcast, Kia will provide you with an opportunity to get closer to the action through their Kia's movement that inspires moments. These include tickets and experiences to key cricket competitions across the summer. Listen out each week to hear how you can get involved and win the opportunity of a lifetime. Anyway, on with the show. Australia prevail in another Ashes test to remember. Ash Gardner's 12-wicket haul trumps Sophie Eccleston's 10-fer at Trent Bridge. We are one day out from the Lords Test, before which England have made another typically bold selection call. The county championship has returned. West Indies are on the brink of missing out on World Cup qualification. And the 317-page report from the Independent Commission for Equity in Cricket has found that English cricket suffers from widespread and deep-rooted racism, sexism and elitism. A lot to get stuck into today. I'm Yaz Rana and with me this morning is Cassia Whitney and Ben Gardner. Mark Butcher will be joining us shortly, as will Santoki Nagyledran from the Caribbean Cricket Podcast to talk about everything that's going on with West Indies cricket at the moment. Let's start with the Trent Bridge test. Listeners of the recent daily shows will know that, Katya, you were there for all five days. Um, how much of a missed opportunity is this for England? 55 for naught chasing, 268 to go 4-0 up in the series. It's a very long way back now for England. I think it's huge. Like I think the match was a lot closer than a lot of people expected. Um, and I think that's it is a massive missed opportunity, particularly given the manner in which some of them got out in that last innings. I mean, Nats and Brunt's dismissal kind of springs to mind that um, that was something that she really probably shouldn't have done. Um, but even like, even when they were two or three down, they still could have chased it. They absolutely could have chased it. But um, yeah, I think it's a massive missed opportunity. And it's a shame that, with this test being first and with the most points awarded for the test that they're now so far down and then it's going to be so difficult for them to to come back from that. Um, obviously, it's not completely over. They could, you know, pull a fast one. They could keep it going until the ODI series or mid-ODI series. But yeah, I think it is a, is a miss, bit of a missed opportunity. Mm. You were saying before we recorded that the test was a, is a bit of a leveller in that neither side plays that much long-form cricket. And you'd expect that Australia will be even stronger than they were for the test match in the white ball stuff? Yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, um, I said test match cricket is a leveller and it is, but I think a lot, maybe too much is made out of the fact that none, neither of them have played mu- play much long format cricket. You, you also, you look at the fact that like um, Australia almost don't know the strengths of their own players. Like Talia McGrath, who's probably their best, who was the best team throughout the game, came on sixth change in the first innings. Like that's, that's absurd to think of in like, and you know, it, I mean, that speaks to their depth that they can, you know, just cycle through their bowls until they find one who will like, you know, do quite a lot of work to win the game. But equally, it shows Annamel that... Sutherland looked all right at eight as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, but that shows they're kind of learning kind of as the game goes on, who is, uh, who, who, who their strengths are and not. And Annamel Sutherland also, she was coming off a hundred in the, in one of the warm up games. I think she had a, a, a word with the coach afterwards and saying like, and just like, maybe put the orders. And I think you'll, you'll, you'll be all right now. You're playing, but you're, you're going at eight. Um, yeah, I think I think lot series will be interesting. And I think one thing that shows that it's not necessarily the gap between the sides is narrowing, but that right now, just because of, you know, missing Meg Lanning, that it might be narrow is just the fact that Alyssa Healy is so determined to keep playing, basically. Like she's got these two broken fingers 
that she's playing through the whole test with. Yeah, I feel like not enough is being made of this. Yeah. That's quite a big deal. So two broken fingers, one in each hand. Yeah, it's. I mean, Kate, so, I mean, there's quite a lot of injuries saying during the game. Kate Cross also dislocated a finger, uh, popped it back in, came back and then bowled maybe the ball of the test match to a, a kind of the, the sort of, I don't know if it was a cutter or if it just uh, decked back in. But, and then Kate Cross was kind of speaking at Stumps that day being like, yeah, I've, I've really been through the wars and like, I'm the one who wants to play loads more of this. Like, uh, um, but yeah, but, but the fact that Eliza Healy is like so determined to stick around, that obviously speaks to her character, but also speaks to the fact that Australia is a team that, you know, they need leaders and actually they're kind of looking around for them and beyond Healy now that with, with Lanning out, if, if Healy were not to be there, then they would maybe be missing that aspect of it. So I think that they'll be interesting, the White Ball series, but I almost don't view them in the context of the whole Ashes series, which is pretty much gone, view them in the context of if England can nick one of them, mm. that would still be a massive result uh, from, you know, considering how strong Australia are, I think. Later in the show, you'll hear me and Butch talk about the format of the series with a, with a test match taking uh, worth four points at the start of the series. I, I personally thought that was quite a good system when it looked like England going to win it, uh, but England haven't won it and Australia stronger in uh, white ball cricket. You'd expect there to be quite a few dead rubbers. Hopefully not, but there's a reasonable chance that you might have up to four dead rubbers. Um, if you were to to change the the, the system, would would you? Uh, well, I I would, but in terms of if you have the number of games as they are right now, it's it's difficult to come up with the perfect system. And partly as well, it's because regaining the ashes is and should be really hard. Basically, like um to to win a series that that is something that is tough. And so that means that if you lose a big game early on then it should be hard to win it from that point on. Like this is only kind of an issue because Australia are so good, but that's not, mm. that's not the fault of the structure of the series or that's not England's fault. That's just the way that cricket happens, happens to be at the moment. And the issue, if you put, if, if you do have a one-off test, if you put it anywhere else in the series, if you put it in the middle, then the team that wins the first series, especially if Australia had won that, then they would know that a draw would like almost certainly, you know, secure them the ashes again. Uh, if you put it at the end, it might be a dead rubber or again, it might be the fact that a team knows they can draw it and, and win the Ashes, which could enc- encourage some, some negative play. I think that's the risk of that negative play is slightly decreased with a five-day test or it's significantly decreased actually because mm. you saw in this game, you know, teams were able, both teams were able to make big scores. It's also very hard to play for a draw exactly. in a five-day yeah. test match early on. Yeah, in a, in a four-day test, that's a lot easier. In a five-day test, that that is hard. And you saw here that like the, the game just reached a result just because the pitch broke up and the teams had two good spinners. Um, but in terms of the format going forward, uh, I mean, my, my personal preference, I think, would be working towards, at some point, just a, a three-test Ashes series. And I wouldn't be totally against it being three tests and then some white ball stuff. Um, but actually, I think my personal preference would be just have the, the, the women's Ashes be the pinnacle women's test cricket event in the world and have it set apart like that. And you've got the World Cup and you've got the T20 World Cup that highlights, you know, limited overs cricket for um, uh, on, on the global stage. And this can be the main thing that is played in like a pinnacle event just by itself, I think. But we had a, a three, the Ashes used to be three test matches back in the day. Then it got down to one test and that was what you'd play the Ashes for. But then you'd also have the multi-format stuff. Um, and the reason that it isn't like that anymore is because speaking to the players, they said it got really stale and that they didn't enjoy playing it anymore because that's the only time they play test cricket. So if you only play test cricket at that point and then you ask them to play three test matches, then inevitably it's not going to be as good a competition as if you play it through a multi-format thing. Um, 
personally, I'd like to see there be two test matches, one at the end and one at the beginning, um, because that would keep the series alive a lot more. And and I also thought that at the test, it was it's such a shame now that we can't see those narratives that started during this test match play out to the level that they could play out over the white ball series. You said Alyssa Healy's fingers and and the injuries in the England squad. There was also some, some needle in, in the test. And I don't think that plays out in the same way in white ball cricket as it does in long format cricket. So if you had that carrot of another test match at the end of the series, um, I think that would be a really good way to play out and also a good way to get more test cricket into the women's game. Um, before you can put in place the domestic structures in order to facilitate that. Yeah, I guess if you had two four-point tests, if you had another test coming up now, because uh, I, I, I personally would feel maybe if you keep them together, then first you have them in blocks, but also you just have players who are test ready. Um, but yeah, like you'd have England, like Lauren Filer, say in her, uh, her battle with Elise Perry, for example, mm. um, you'd have that that could then get played out again um but then you've also and got have, like and in just two four point games as well so just in terms of the actual point structure that could, could be quite compelling because england now four points down fine but they'd know if they won that that second test and they'd be you know right back in contention with the ashes again yeah but if you look at the men's series and it's uh, the five test series it's almost like a battle of which team is still on the park at the end or who's got their most kind of frontline players still on the park at the end with all that rest and rotation when you go into the white ball stuff, that element gets taken out of it. And I think that is a really important element of the Ashes. And so many series have been decided on players getting injured and all that kind of stuff. And it's taken out of the women's Ashes. And I think that would be a really important story that you could add into it if you played another test at the end um, by keeping those players on the park. Yeah, I can see that. And, and would would Fyler be able to play a back-to-back test? Would, would, would Sophie Elkson having, you know, bold mm. 80 overs in the game? Uh, maybe that's unlikely and that's an advantage, I guess, of almost having a, a bit of a break in the middle um the other the other i guess the other thing as well in terms of what not not what's the best format but what's the guess best scheduling i guess for this in terms of a uh, exposure and having it you know be be the main event that it that it deserves to be right and yaz was you were saying before the show is to have like the, the women's ashes actually maybe separated from the men's ashes i mean they've they promoted it really well this year i mean there's that ashes two ashes campaign isn't it uh which is which has probably put it on a level footing from a promotional point of view but um, uh, like next summer, especially when it's a low-key summer for the England men's team, that would be the pinnacle international cricket of the summer. Mm-hmm. Whereas right now, you've just got everything is just so squeezed. Just with the with, with the hundred, obviously, meaning you can't play into August, and then with news breaking all the time with the World Test Championship final in the summer as well. Yeah, then at least they've managed to find a five-day gap for the women's test, but it's still kind of not not subsumed. But you've got you know there is focus drawn a little bit elsewhere with you know who's going to play at Lords is 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 Moeen going to be fit you know what's Michael Clark said today that sort of thing uh which does doesn't detract from it at all but sort of um like it just could be you know the cricket that everyone is talking about and it's not quite that because of the fact they're trying to use the men's assets to mm. to haul it up I think it's doing the opposite a little mm. bit I think I think there's a tendency to stick with like the the narrative or, or like not narrative that's the wrong word but to stick with what's been tried with women's cricket and they do like you know the double headers playing the hundred the double headers and it's using the men's game to promote the women's game but I think there's a kind of oversight that when you give the women's game the right conditions to succeed it absolutely will succeed mm. and it will succeed in its own right we saw with that test match there was I think twenty three thousand people came and saw it across across the five days whereas seven thousand came to Taunton last year to see South Africa play and I still don't think that that Trent Bridge was completely the right environment for for for, women, for the women's test match to succeed um but it will succeed on its own and if you 
it can be played as standalone outside the men's ashes. And and before the series started, I was very much on board with the, the ashes to ashes and, and thinking that that was a really good way to promote the game. But as you said, it's it's so squeezed and, and, and there's so much of it that I think that it could have been even more of a success if it was played either next year or at a completely different time in the summer to when the mm. match was played. Um, there were some huge performances from England in defeat. Sophie Eccleston obviously taking 10 in the game, bowling 77.1 overs overall. Tammy Beaumont's double 100. Um, but also an encouraging performance from a new name in Lauren Filer, who bowled with, with excellent pace. She very nearly got Elise Perry out with her first ball in Test cricket. Um, Katia, how impressed were you with Filer? And do you think she comes into England's thinking for the white ball stuff? Uh, John Lewis talked about that in press conference after the match and he he wasn't sure. I think he's concerned about managing her workloads because she is still pretty young and playing uh, a form of, like a long form cricket game when she hasn't, she won't have played any long form cricket before aside from that practice match beforehand is obviously a big task on your body. Um, but he did say she would come into their thought process for it. Um, and she was really impressive there were times in the match where it looked like England just weren't going to take a wicket and then she came on and suddenly you know these the best batters in in women's cricket were struggling against against her um and and maybe that does come in slightly that she she was an unknown but it also shows you what pace can do and I think I think I said in one of the dailies that it was a big thing for her to come in and replace Izzy Wong because mm. I think everyone expected Izzy Wong to play because in the last test match she was brilliant and she's been brilliant um over the last year um and also given that she's such a big personality and that she's one of the best known names in the game in this country um if she'd come in and done a bad job then it would have looked really bad um but coming in and succeeding like that um it was really really impressive and she mm. did probably as good a job as she could have done especially on a pitch that really wasn't easy to bowl on as a fast mm. bowler the thing that i find amazing was that there's so much chat about bowlers oh they'd, they'd be they'd really come on leaps and bounds if they just put on an extra yard of pace it's actually really rare that actually happens. Well, uh, John Lewis was saying in the um, in 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 a press conference after the game, he said that he was looking at a few bowlers around the country that he thinks he could put on an extra mile of pace with and get them bowling up near eighty miles an mm. hour. And it's it's really interesting to think that a coach is that confident, having not spent that much time with the players, that he can just make them bowl faster. Um, and he said he'd done that with Lauren Filer over the last few months. Mm. So Lauren Filer last year was bowling low to mid 70s and now she's up in you know late 70s she's really quick mm. um and he's done that in a really short space of time mm. um and i think that's really interesting i'd love to sit down with him and ask what actually have you done yeah with these players? really interesting actually Definitely. and it was the fact she sustained her pace as well right yeah. like the, her last spell in the game was pretty much as quick as her first she was still hitting that 76 mile an hour mark which is properly properly quick yeah i think it's it's i mean maybe she'll play and maybe t20 is almost more the format for her than ODIs like I think in in a way like like she like the economy of her spells won't really be dictated by how much teams try and attack her because she's like she's bowling some balls that are like almost unplayable and she's bowling some balls that like if you throw your bat at because the ball is coming on so fast mm. it might well fly away um and so in T20 cricket in fact if she has kind of like a natural economy rate but she will take wickets that's almost a better thing in T20 cricket than ODI cricket when you know an economy of eight say is more harmful than it is in T20 cricket and in T20 cricket when new ball wickets are so, so important uh, in that power play. I guess the two other questions for England will be, um, does Beaumont's incredible form, do they just make basically a form pick? They think, okay, we've got a player who is, you know, seeing the ball better than anyone else on the planet. Do we just back them in, uh, in, in T20 cricket, which she's not currently a part of, especially when 
I mean, you'd be picking more on that than picking excluding Dunkley based on her struggles. That would be harsh, I think. But I, or equally, if Dunkley had come out and, you know, uh, smashed a 70 or whatever, then that wouldn't really be a question. No. Um, well, so- again, I have a line from John Lewis on that as well. <laughs> Not happening. Um, he, um, he said it, it would definitely come more into their thinking than it would have before she scored two back-to-back double hundreds, <laughs> yeah. which I think is probably quite an obvious comment. Um, <laughs> but he said that he doesn't, he, he said it, he was asked about it, sat next to Danny Wyatt. Um, who is obviously opens for England in T20s. Um, and he said that he he would consider it, but he doesn't see it. The gist I got from it was, no, it's not going to happen. Okay. Um, mm. But he said, oh, I thought Dunkley played really well. And I was just thinking about her first innings where she objectively didn't play mm. well. Um, and yeah, I think it do- it should come into the equation, but whether it will or not, I don't I don't know. And did he have anything to say on the, on the wicketkeeper question as well, or Amy Jones backed? And no, he didn't say anything on the wicketkeeper question. Yeah, because um, we were just, we were discussing this yesterday, but Amy Jones averages less than ten in both white ball formats against Australia, and that's a pretty big sample. Size yeah, high well. sc- high score of thirty. So there's not even one knock you can kind of you know pin your hopes to. Um, the the yeah the questions we were discussing yesterday is who who is as good a keeper as her rather than are you mm. replacing her batting and and that's comes more into mm. the into the equation when you're standing up to the stump so much mm. but yeah um ben we've got to talk about ash Gardner. um long been a huge part of australia's success she pulled the rug beneath england's feet in that fourth innings england looked like obviously they were going to win the game and then she takes eight in the innings and 12 overall in the match she was, she was brilliant yeah yeah i should say that there's no relation um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah she, she, i mean she was absolutely incredible especially in that second innings when not not just that um uh, obviously the figures stand out but the fact that you know Australia were missing Alana King on that fourth evening and you weren't sure at that point if they're going to be missing her for the whole game. So you've got, you've got, you know, she at that point is the frontline spinner, right? Um, and England at the point when they're 50 for naught have probably just edged into being favourites, um, maybe for the for the first time in the test. Um, and like they needed a cricketer to, to stand up basically. And Ash Gardner is increasingly that for Australia. I mean, she was what player of the tournament at the T20 World Cup, but you know, the Sophie Test cricket, played to test played that she didn't really have the chance to have this landmark performance and she you know she didn't hear I mean she was so so consistent just hitting that good line length every time the pitch was doing enough by that point even if it wasn't doing lows that she was turning some some were turning a fair amount some were turning just a little bit some were going straight on and England just really didn't have an answer basically it was like an impeccable display of of spin bowling on a pitch that's offering you a little bit rather than one that's uh that's absolutely ragging square um and uh yeah I don't know Ashes, ashes, is that what we're calling it? Um, yeah, it was amazing. Um, um, at the time of recording, England haven't yet named their T20 squad. Um, the T20s get underway on Saturday at Edgebaston. Um, before we head to Butch, for this episode's Kia's movement that inspires moment, Kia is giving you the chance to watch the fifth and final Ashes Test match against Australia at the Kia Oval on July the 30th. Not only will you be able to attend day four of the test match, but you can also watch it from the luxury of the Kia box. For a chance to win a pair of tickets, all you need to do is enter via the link in the description. Let's head to Mark Butcher for his thoughts on the Trent Bridge test and some of the chat that's being dished out from the England players and also the Aussie ex-pros over the last week. Mark, it felt like a missed opportunity for England at Trent Bridge. Um, they were in a really good position. Had they were themselves 55 for naught, chasing 268. I think they would have taken that if you gave them that at the start of the game. Where do you think the gaps are between the two sides? Is it necessarily quality? I thought the bowling attacks in particular seemed pretty similar. Or is it in mm. part just the, the, the accumulated knowledge of how to get over the line in games like that? 
Um, yeah, well, yes. Um, first and foremost, it was a, a fantastic test match. Um, and I, my, my personal view is that man for man or woman for woman, player for player, um, there is not a massive amount between the two teams. Um, you know, you had stunning performance, individual performances from, from both sides. Um, and, and you know, a relative lack of experience in terms of, well, not relative, it's actually a huge lack of experience in terms of playing multi-day Red Bull cricket. Um, and in the end, it hurt England more than it hurt Australia. Um, I felt, you know, it was revealing talking to John Lewis at the end of the game, actually, because he said that their, their plan had been all along that if, they, if England had won the toss, that they would have bowled first. So they did what they wanted to do and that the, the plan had been to, you know, to bowl Australia out, get a lead, um, you know, and then and then bowl them out again and, and have to knock off whatever was left. You know, the sort of, you know, bowl them out for 300 tops, get 400, 450 yourselves and then and then have another go when the pitch is worn, which is, you know, a brave strategy because the pitch looked pretty flat from day one, day one and had um, and had a, a few catches been taken, um, they may well have done that. I think they were, what, 240 for six or something. So, that, you know, they were kind of on course to do it, which is great. All, all fantastic. However, um, that plan did not come to fruition and they needed to think out of the box a little bit. And that's where I was, I was critical on the, on the broadcast of the, um, the lack of sort of uh, lateral thinking that went on before the beginning of, of Australia's second inning. So the, the lead was only 10. Uh, there were 19 overs or something left of the day. Sophie Eccleston and spin had been the main weapon in the match up until that point. And, and we all in the, in the box, it wasn't just me, felt that the, the best way for England to kind of really get their teeth into Australia and knock them over for sort of 150 was to, to, to give the, ball, the new ball to Sophie Eccleston and try and hold things as tight as they possibly could at the other end. Um, and, and in the end, it turned out to be a pivotal sort of hour and a half. You know, England went for, went for 80, 82 for none. Um, you know, the lead was 90 at the end of, at the end of, day, um, at the end of day three. And from that moment on, they were chasing their tails. And as it was, they kind of got it right the next day on day four, and uh, and took uh, took nine wickets for for a hundred. But by then, it was it was a little a little bit too late. Uh, and then, of course, they had that sort of headless that headless hour of batting on the on the um, on the final day. Um, sorry, on the on the sort of fourth afternoon to end up four down um, after being fifty for none. So uh, for for me, it was it was pretty much. As, as you described it, that the two teams were pretty well matched um, right the way through the card. But there were moments in terms of how you how you actually go about playing the game that really, really letting them down. And you can point to, to drop catches here and there um, and, and, you know, and, and some of the shots in, the, in that final innings as being a, as, as being a um, you know, the, the wearing them actually physically lost it. But I think had they not put themselves under so much pressure by getting things tactically wrong, then they might not have made the errors, if you see what I mean. And that's kind of, and that's test match cricket, really. You can't, you miss your opportunities, even though the game lasts for five days, you have to make your decision. Your decision making has to be pinpoint in order to recognise the moments when you need to either sit back or whether you need to press or the rest of it. And I think it was that naivety that cost England the test match in the end. Mm, just, just a word on Sophie Eccleston. She clearly proved that she was England's go-to bowler in basically every circumstance and <laughs> every yeah. possible condition. 
Um, she, she's absolutely brilliant. And it feels like she's been around for ages. She has been around for ages, but she's only recently turned 24. So it's actually yeah. kind of scary to think what she might go end up, might end up achieving in, in the game. Yeah, I mean, and there's such there's such lovely variety to her bowling. You know, she's she's able to kind of go through the go through the gears. She she does exactly um she does exactly what the art of spin bowling is, which is to 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 have the ball land in the same spot, but get there in about four different ways. Um, you know, she she's she's very very good. Um, you know, I, I think making comparisons between the, the men's and women's game is 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 not particularly helpful. But my goodness, if we if we had one as good as her. Uh, having said that, Liam Dawson's just scored a hundred and taken taken a shed load of wickets for Hampshire. So maybe we do have one. We just don't want to pick him. Um, but if we had one as good as her, we might, we we might not be um, bringing people out of retirement to play Ashes series. Yeah, I was I was wondering how long it would take you to bring up Liam Dawson. <laughs> um, just finally on the women's test, what are your thoughts on the format of the series? In particular, four points for a test match at the start. I was. Yeah. I, I thought that was a pretty good system when it looked like England were going to win it. Um, but now, <laughs> now yeah. we haven't won it. Um, it does feel like uh, we could be into dead rubbers quite soon. Australia is just such a good white ball side. Yeah, I, it's a bit of a shame. And and it, and it comes about because of the fact that Australia hold the Ashes already, doesn't it? It means you have to um, you have to win the Ashes outright in order to uh, in order to wrestle them away from the holders. Um, look, I think they've, they've juggled around with it quite a lot to try to make it so that the, the matches um, have equal relevance. Uh, and, and I think for me, maybe if if it's going to remain four points, I think maybe you put it you put the test match at the end. You kind of you have the biggest prize or the, for the most prizes at the, the back end of the series. There's one way of doing it. Or if you want to play the test match at the beginning, you make it three points instead of four. So it's, it's worth one and a half, um, you know, one and a half uh, white ball wins. Uh, and then I suppose you then don't have to have the situation where you have to win five out of six. But however, I mean, that's, you know, Australia deserve deserve to have the advantage because number one, they're the holders. And number two, they won the test. Uh, you know, now that we have the, the games have played over five days, the likelihood is that there will be a result now, as opposed to the sort of terminal draws that we've had in, in, in women's test matches. Um, and so perhaps it, it, it can be tweaked and looked at again. Um, but you know, take nothing away from the fact that when it when it came down to it, um, you know, Alyssa Healy stood up after on the back of three knots on the trot. She was dropped dropped. It could have been a fourth, very first ball, and that you know, pivotal moment in the game there as well. Uh, but then she makes fifty, keeps with two broken fingers, catches everything, gets everything right in terms of her, her decision making on the field, and on Australia win. Funnily enough, by the margin of the of the head start, England gave them gave them in the third innings on that on that Friday. Uh, what day was it? Where were we on that on the, on the Saturday night? Yeah. So um, look, it was. I thought it was a great test. I really do. And the, and the, if it proved anything at all to the England England girls, it was that the, the gap between them and, and Australia is not as as large, perhaps as some people might think. Mm. Um, onto the men's series. The second test starts tomorrow at Lords. Maybe I've just got a short memory, but it does feel like the inter-test chat is at an all-time high. So Zach Crawley. Confidently predicted that England would win by I don't know 150-ish runs the other day on Times Radio, and then anyone who's anybody really in Australian cricket is is coming hard on Ollie Robinson for for some of his uh, more bolshy comments over the last few days. Um, yeah. What have you made of it? Because and then amongst it all, the Australian team have actually kept their heads down and kind of just actually been fairly humble in uh, about what they 
did well and maybe didn't do well at Edgebaston. Um, but the mm. Edgebasters are going in hard on on um, Robbins in particular. Yeah, uh, it's quite funny, really, isn't it? I mean, uh, <laughs> I think the I think we're winning the banter war. I mean, not that that means anything, but just the 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 shocking level of um lack of humor really in in a lot of the stuff coming out of the of some of the ex players and the short memory of of the memories of their own is in terms of the the nonsense that they used to come up with while they were playing so uh it's it's all quite amusing um and england i i guess the bizarre thing about it is, is England are one nil down, and somehow they're kind of like they're winding the Australians up like they were three nil, like they were three nil to the to the worst. Um, none of this will make any difference whatsoever if England's record against Australia at Lords continues in the way that it has done for all for all time. But it kind of it does give you a sort of like a I suppose a, an internal an inside view into the sort of the psyche of this sort of the Australian male and their and their protectiveness over 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 their cricket team. Um, and it's quite it's quite amusing to watch. It really is. I mean, the, the whole thing with with Ollie Robinson, you know, sort of blokes having a massive pop at his ability as a cricket player. I mean, fair enough. Have a go at him as a bloke if you don't like him or you don't like what he's saying. But you know, he's taken what seventy odd wickets at twenty one. Um, he averages in, less in, than Pat Cummins, and he also yeah, he averages yeah. less than Pat Cummins in Pakistan as well. I thought that was like kind of the best illustration that yeah. he really is quite good on lots of different surfaces. Yeah, I mean he's he's a performer. I mean, you know, obviously his his only appearance in Australia in, in an Ashes contest was not was not particularly memorable. You know, he had that the back injury and was and was bowling nude nuts, whatever the hell they are, um, <laughs> on that trip. But um, you know, I, I think I think some of it has been has been silly more than anything else. Um, uh, but all all adds to the amusement. You you you've kind of alluded to it, but um, Robin, Robinson in his press conference after I think day three at Edgebaston said that. Um, he he didn't really think that much of his send off to Kawaja because he said this is what the Australians have always done, and he and he name checked Ricky Ponting. Um, Robinson obviously hasn't played against Ricky Ponting. You you have uh, what what yeah. is it like playing against that Australian team? Would they give it good? Because I mean, the big difference in terms of coverage now compared to then is the stump mics are turned up to to max. You you do really hear almost everything yeah. in the middle in a way that probably wasn't the case twenty years ago. Yeah, I don't. I don't recall a massive amount. I mean, there were, you know, there were send-offs. There were, there were all, all. There was all that kind of stuff. People, quite rightly, Robinson, as Robinson said, people kind of get emotional and kind of the 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 um, you know, tempers run high at times. But I don't remember there being anything other other than that really. And in, in terms of that particular send-off, if you want to call it, he kind of, he wasn't in Kawaja's face. It was kind of a. It was it was sort of. It was a slightly sheepish one, if you ask me. <laughs> it was hardly Merv to Graham Hick, was it? So he got right up in his grill and just and spat at him, you know. Um, so I don't know. It's just a massive storm in a teacup, really. But it, again, it kind of it's, it, it's, it amuses me because um, you know the the way that the way that the game's played, or at least the, the way that um, the way that on field behaviour is is marshalled always seems to be that the Australians are in control of it. So if the Australians want to be really tough and hard and uncompromising on the field, then the way that they're doing that is the best way and the only way to do it. If the Australians are are now being sort of humble and kind and nice to one another and showing the game in a perfect light and being inclusive and all the rest of it, then that's the way that everybody else must do it as well. Um, You know, they've always had this kind of messiah complex about the the behavioural norms of the game of cricket. And, um, and quite frankly, it's, it's, it's funny. 
Yeah, I mean, in fairness, I guess part, <laughs> I guess part of it is that, you know, with the exception of the like, well, no, six-year spell uh, around the end of the 2000s, early 2010s, Australia do tend to win most Ashes series, so I guess... They, yeah, and, and and that's and you know that's absolutely fine. You know, the, being being sort of one of the the preeminent um, uh, sports teams around, they're going to have they're they're going to have a lot of success. I think it's just I think the thing that sticks in a lot of people's throats, and it's not just the English, is the way that they they sort of are the, the sole arbiters of the way people are supposed to behave on the cricket field. Um, you know. <sighs> I don't see anybody else getting caught with bits of sandpaper and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, they then throw out these huge punishments where they strip players of, of the, the right to captain Australia and ban them forever. You know, the, the punishment then doesn't fit the crime. Um, and it's all very puritanical. Very, very odd. Very, very odd. But but most amusing. Um, moving to the, the actual cricket, uh, there's, there's a bit of chat that Josh Tong might play at Lords. I mean, there's a pretty good chance that when this comes out, England would have named their eleven. Um, I guess it's interesting that England haven't named their eleven already. They, they're pretty used to to naming a side for, yeah. for um, the toss. Um, I guess the the feeling is that there might be a bit of grass left on the pitch after how flat it was during the Ireland Test match, and there's uh, there's a feeling that Mark Wood might not be a hundred percent fit, and in that case, England yeah. difference. So I guess Tong kind of makes sense in that in that case with Root doing more bowling than they would have previously planned for. Yeah, there, I mean, there are a lot, there are a lot more ifs and buts than they would like, aren't there? I mean, sort of Mo, Moeen's injury then sort of throws into, um, you know, it does throw up the spectre of going in without a specialist spinner. Um, don't do it. Uh, and, and of course, you know, Mark would not being fit. Jimmy's relative sort of um, uh, relative. Uh, how would you call it? I can't find the right word. It's too early Eight. in the morning. No, well, no age, no, but his kind of his his, his lack of potency, I suppose, um, at uh, at Edgbaston may may have been a concern. Although he could have, you know, could have just been a little bit rusty. Um, so that they're not in a sort of that's that position of real strength, whereby they know exactly how they want to play and exactly what the what the eleven is going to be, um, as they have been quite a bit in the past. And, and part of that is because of part of that is because of some gambles that they've taken in terms of selections. And part of that is because, in truth, they're they're really really low on on sort of high pace options um, due to injuries. So, uh, and also you know I suppose that we keep trying to keep an eye a little bit on what the weather forecast looked like. That it might change sort of part way through the test matching. But I still think that there's not much you can do about the fact that we've had very very little rain here for the last couple of months. And so the underlying surface, no matter how much grass you leave on it, is going to be dry. Um, mm. And and therefore, you know, as the game goes deeper, you'd imagine that spin plays a plays a big part. Even though at Lords it traditionally hasn't been a, a you know a massive a massive turning surface. But if your pitches ended up end up being unbelievably flat and the fast bowlers can't do anything either, then you end up flogging them to death. Um, you know, if you don't have a, a spin bowler that you can go to and, and, and hold an end for you. So, you know, Australia, will, will, no matter what the conditions, Australia will play Nathan Lyon, right? I mean, that's just, that goes without saying. Um, and over the course of five days, you're going to need a top-class spin bowler. Um, whether we have one or not is a different thing altogether. Yeah. Um, just finally, there's been a lot of speculation <laughs> about um, who will conditions... If if it's if it's if there's more grass in the wicket than than there was at Edgbaston, Edgbaston was very docile, um, and there's a bit more pace in the wicket, a bit more movement. Which team does that actually suit? Because both both sides are saying it's them. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think traditionally speaking, you, you're kind of you know brings brings your line bowlers into it, doesn't it? it you know, McGraw always loved bowling at Lords. I should imagine that, that that Cummins and Hazelwood would not be unhappy about the ball moving around, and I should imagine that Broad and Anderson would be happy, unhappy with the ball moving around. It then comes down to your batters, doesn't it? It then comes down to do in circumstances like that. Does a does a quick forty help you out, or does somebody digging in and making one hundred and thirty when when wickets are falling at the other end help you out? And the the, the likelihood, the bad probabilities is that. Australia have more batters who are likely to dig in and do that than England do. And if England do score runs, they'll score them unbelievably quickly. So um, I, I don't know. I mean, look, traditionally, Australia have played very, very well at Lords, haven't they? Um, the pitches of Lords have been flatter than than have been in, in the country. And on those flatter pitches, which are a little bit more like the sort of conditions you get in Australia, that tends to favour the Australian team more than it favours us. Mm, cool. Uh, well, it should be a blockbuster second test match if any of the um, inter-test chat has been anything to go by. But cheers for your time. Catch you next week. All of our Ashes moments of the week are brought to you by our stylish partner, Charles Tirrett. The menswear brand are famous for their smart shirts and suits down to their comfy polos and chinos. They've even got Joe Root Support as their latest brand partner. Get 20% off head-to-toe outfits. Just head online to charlestirrett.com and use the promo code WISDOM23 at checkout. Update that wardrobe. Um, for this week's show, the Charles Tirrett moment of the week is that England have selected Josh Tung to play at Lords. That news has literally just dropped. Um, ben, what do you make of that decision? Um, it's punchy, as is everything England do. Uh, I suppose it probably speaks quite a lot to the conditions that uh, England are expecting. You know, you can't judge too much from a, pictures of a pitch taken 40 hours eight hours from the game but equally this one looks a lot greener than the edge bass and surfers did at the equivalent stage yeah, but before the i always match. get frustrated by this chat they, they can cut the grass that's true yeah they can and they and they likely will yes <laughs> uh but but uh uh you what, what you can't do is is regrow grass i guess so yeah. it, 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 i guess the thing is that the the, the pitch of the island test match was really slow that england wouldn't have liked it it was quite similar to what england got at edge baston mm-hmm. so you can see them leaving grass on it to, to inject a bit of pace and movement that was missing for the first two tests of the summer yeah yeah possibly yeah and you know pitch preparations is a hard thing as well um so so there's always a bit of guesswork involved but i'd, I'd imagine that's they've, they've almost gone with they, they have gone with a point of difference but they've also it's more that they've gone with the four seamers i think mm. um and then from that point of view it's interesting that it's i mean yes tongue is maybe the quickest to have available it's, it's intriguing that mark wood is like you, you wonder you hope there's nothing else going on there that they are just reserving him for you know the two pitches that they think will will suit him most which might well be old trafford and um uh, and the oval and there's not something else going on I, I would have really liked to see him in in one of these first two tests and it's and it's in a way it's un-england i think that like or on this new england side like uh mccullum has said in the past that you kind of um you know you just pick your best attack for the game and then you kind of worry about who's fit for the next one after mm. that that's seemingly not the approach unless there's something we don't know um about Mark Wood um, but then there's also there are other seamers that they had in that squad Potts has been released to go back to Durham to play in the last two games of that county championship game uh, but Chris Wokes is there as well and especially that tail now when you consider how important tail end runs were not you know not England bothered to try and get any in the first innings but <laughs> apart from that how important they were at Edge Basson when you've got a tail of Broad, Robinson, Tongue, Anderson that is significantly weaker than it would have been with Moeen in it and it's significantly weaker than it would have been with Chris Wokes in it as well 
Um, but I guess but Australia got all those ones with three number 11, so England probably yeah, think they can do the same. England picked four number um, 11s and they're backing those, yeah. With, with Wokes as well, he averages 11.33 at Lords with the ball. So it's not just about strengthening strengthening the tail. He's actually really, really good at Lords. So it's interesting that they've gone with tongue over Wokes or seemingly not not massively considered Wokes in the selection, especially if you're playing four seamers. I can almost see it more if you're playing three seamers, but playing four and then not considering Wokes, I think it's a little bit odd. Maybe? I guess I guess if they have if they want four seamers and Stokes isn't going to bowl that much, they will want one of those four seamers to be noticeably different in terms of what they're giving the attack. Mm. And I guess they still want to play Anderson, Broad, and Robinson. Um, and Wokes doesn't actually add that much different to the other three. I, I guess I'm slightly surprised that they've stuck with the, all three of those guys. Um, I can I can I, I don't know. I just find it if you take a step back. Josh Tongue playing the the Ashes Test at Lords. Who then? Mm. Who would have predicted that? Yeah. Six months ago, this this guy had barely played a first class game. I know he bowled well against Ireland. He took a five from the second innings, but we'll get onto Ireland later. Irish cricket is not quite the force that it once was. Yeah. And, um, and this 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 is a guy who hasn't played that much first class cricket, let alone Test cricket. You know, a lot of people talking about the lack of cricket that Moeen Ali's played in the last few years. That's a guy who had played 60 or test matches. Josh Tong is someone who's played uh, just a handful of first-class matches in the last few years. He's not taken 20 first-class wickets in a summer going back to 2018. Um, it's an amazing story. I know we talked about that going into the Ireland test match, but now he's doing it in an Ashes test match. It is, it is an extraordinary rise. And I guess in his favour is that because England have so many bowling options, Root's going to bowl more than, than he'd bowl at Edgebaston, you'd imagine that if it doesn't go great for him, he can be hidden a little bit. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's a great story, and I, as we said before, Arnold almost just cut and paste that that chat a little bit. That like, um, it's, uh, I like the thinking from England that you know you pick a guy that you like, and then when he's in form, uh, you get him in the side. You know, he got he got Steve Smith LBW, didn't he, mm. earlier in the summer? So who knows? Maybe <laughs> maybe that's going to thinking if you can keep Smith quiet again. And um, I guess he was quicker than we expected in in the Ireland Test match. He, he touched ninety miles per hour, and and we thought he was quicker than the rest of the options England had available. Yeah, but we probably didn't think he was capable of hitting that speed. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, but then he wasn't. You know, th- there's there's still a difference between that and what Mark Wood has been oh, capable of yeah. at, at his quickest. Um, and it's you know, if there's anything that these Australian players like, Mark Wood is so quick that he will ruffle anyone. That speed is something that maybe Australia would be almost more used to playing than any other team in the world. So I guess it's it's going to be fascinating to see how it goes. And also, he's a pretty skillful bowler as well, right? He's not just Mm. that he's, you know, some come in, just bowl quick and that's absolutely it. I think we'll we'll see some size of Joss Tung in this test match, I think. Um, A fair bit of my script was about the uh, call-up of Rohan Ahmed, but he's not going to play now, but I don't want it to go completely to waste. Um, Katia, that was a typically bold call from England to pick the 18-year-old leg spinner as cover for the guy who's played one first-class game in the last two years uh, over a guy. I know that Liam Dawson has had an amazing county championship game since that decision was made. He's called 141 and he's got six for 38 so far in that Middlesex first innings. But... um, that that was uh, the most basball of basball selections. Asking Rahan to be Moeen's cover. Yeah, I, I I think my my kind of initial like reaction to it was that makes sense. Um, not probably because obviously like the basball thing, but also that um, it was Jack Jacks and Rahan that went to went to Pakistan and Rahan outbowled mm. Jacks in Pakistan and, and Jacks hasn't really been bowling much as Surrey's frontline spinner. Um, in the county championship so far, regardless of what Rahan's been doing in the county championship, which is, uh, amounts to not very much with the ball, um, 
it still makes sense to pick him over Jack. With Dawson, they were just never going to pick Liam Dawson because he's far too sensible. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I guess if you're looking at it from the, who would Brendan McCollum pick? It makes a lot of sense. If you're looking at it through the, who would anyone mildly sane pick? I think it doesn't make a massive amount of sense. I think you would rather like go with someone who has more experience when you're one nil down in an Ashes series rather than pick the 18 year old. But then they, they like Rahan and, and they think he's really, really good. And he probably is really, really good. Um, so from that angle, it, it does make sense. But as you said, he's not going to play. So, you know, all of that time spent discussing and dissecting every minutiae <laughs> regarding his election. Yeah. And it's quite funny as well that um, Moen Ali's selection caused such such a kind of furore with it within everything. And then he plays one game, gets injured and isn't playing anymore. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I'd, but I'd, I would still expect Moen to play a further part in this series. I mean, I, I'd imagine... I mean, there's going to be a press conference from Ben Stokes in an hour or so, which will, I guess, explain the decision more. But, you know, Moan was bowling on Monday, which is great. But they, I think, you know, and it, it was coming out fine, but you're just not sure if that skin is completely healed or if it's going to, you know, come off again and you can't, you know, going into a test match. Uh, and that happens on day one. All of a sudden you're kind of stuffed down to a, you know, a 10-man team for the rest of the game. Uh, like if, if Moan just, you know, keep, keeps bowling nets, gets that, that sort of a bit calloused up, a bit hardened, um, then I think he'll come right back into it because I think from a from a bowling point of view, he showed, you know, those glimpses of why Moen was, you know, such a brilliant test cricketer for a time and why England went back to him. Uh, and it's, all it was was that small physical thing. And if that's healed, I can see that he is still the spinner that they'll go to, mm. I think. Um, James wrote in to say, long time listener, first time emailer. I listen to lots of podcasts. Uh, sorry, I listen to podcasts every day, but Wisdom remains my number one choice. Yet, I found the tone of last week's podcast to have missed the point of this England team. Of course, they care about winning, but they also know that by being positive, they're giving themselves a chance of winning and more importantly, keeping people engaged. Should they have declared? Possibly not. But at the time, it was an exciting and positive decision which grabbed everyone's attention. To show the impact this England team have, I will relay the following story. Last week, I coached a year five D team. During the innings break, I overheard one of my teams saying a drop catch during our innings reminded them of Ben Stokes's drop over of Nathan Lyon. Listening to the conversation develop, it turned out many of the team had spent the previous evening watching the highlights of the test with their parents and were gripped by what they had seen. These children usually believe sport isn't for them or have no interest. Yet here they were discussing test match cricket and wanting to emulate Ben Stokes and his team. Winning will always be important, but this England team know that playing the way they are will be far more important for the future of cricket in this country and therefore worth much more than any one-off victory. Analyse their performance, question the selections, but sport is settled by fine margins. This team will be remembered far more fondly than any other England team by a generation of new and old cricket fanatics. Despite all this, you remain my number one podcast choice. Um, thanks very much, James. Um, I, I think there's a lot that's fair in that. Um, uh, completely hear what you're saying. At the start of the series, I did say that even if England lose fairly comfortably, I don't think that means what they're trying to do is wrong. Um, I just think that it's possible for England to inspire a generation and also win. And I think part of the frustration for me at Edgebaston was that they had the game under control and they kind of threw it away in that third innings. And I think losing by such a small margin might add a degree of ruthlessness that has been missing recently, but also I think uh, isn't mutually exclusive with their brand of cricket. I think they can be ruthless and do what they're doing. Um, I also think they do need to win at some point to keep the series interesting. 
um, because I'm, let, I'm I don't know what the playground chat's going to be like um, if if England are two or three nil down. Yeah, it's interesting though. Actually, like, can England do what they're doing? Can can, can you do you know eighty five percent, ninety percent basketball? Is that a thing that that exists? I think or, they did or, that last summer. I, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess they did, and that sort of answers the question. But it's still like so much of this does depend on. It feels like it depends on like you know total buy-in, total exoneration for you know any uh, for any brave decision made. Um, you know, total all-out attack, total focus on this. That that you know, like is 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 Joe Root getting you know coming down the track and getting stumped? Is is that somehow integral? I I mean, it's it's a tricky thing to kind of match together because you know the success of it has been that they have entirely divorced you know result from uh, from process from you know the having fun and the enjoyment is like is central basically and and obviously it's enjoyment because you know you're doing things that should help you win but it's the enjoyment that's the the main part. And if you then start saying like they, they basically it's it's a it's a messaging thing that needs to be gotten right. It doesn't mean that you can't put the messaging in a way that ex- that you know gets it all across. But for them to now just say, actually, we really need to win this one, Joe. You're going to go and have to dig in. You're going to have to put away the reverse scoop. You're going to have to you know stay in your crease with Nathan Lyon uh, or, or 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 whatever the message might be to any of the players. Not that Root's the biggest problem by any by any stretch. Um, it's 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 a tricky thing to get right. I mean, they they, they have. It seems, you know, they've had other tricky messages to deliver before and it seems like they've basically got them right. Even, you know, I think with Ben Folks, he, even up to the start of this summer, felt central to the England side, even having been left out in Pakistan, right? Which is, a, that's a tricky thing that, to do from like a man management point of view and they did it well. They managed to integrate two very green spinners in a way that made them key to the side and then leave them out. And yet that still feels like they handled that really well. They have been good at man managing through this and... If they do feel that maybe a, a change of tack is needed to, to win some games, I would back them to do it. But it is an interesting uh, question of how they go about mm. it, I think. Yeah. I think the issue was that that test match was like the perfect one to expose all of the different tensions within Basball because they, they lost by such a fine margin. But they also, there was some moments where it was just like, oh, if you just knuckled down there, if you'd just done that, you would have won it. And I, I don't like going if, 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 but you know, if they'd taken all their chances, if they'd done certain things differently, then they would have won it. Um, and it just allows people to kind of go, well, you know, they're not playing smart cricket, they're playing brainless mm. cricket. When actually I don't, I don't think they are playing brainless cricket. I think they're doing something that's quite well thought out, even though that sounds ridiculous saying it. Mm. Um, but you know, if England had had come out on top in that test by a tiny, tiny bit, everyone would go, oh my God, isn't, isn't basketball amazing? And just because yeah. they were on the wrong side of the result, I'm not necessarily sure it demands a complete kind of dissection of whether it's the right way to do things or not. And at the end of the day, they, they can't roll back from it now. So. 100%, 100%. That, that, that pitch at Edbaston is exactly the kind of pitch that England sides in, in the recent past would comfortably finish second best against Australia. Um, and... Yeah, just because they were, they were, they got themselves in a position to win the game and and didn't quite do it, that doesn't mean that the method that got them to the position where they were in total control, not quite total control, but in control of the game, um, wasn't the right one to use. I think. Um, so, and the other thing as well, like like it's amazing that England just like it is amazing when you pull out a bit that England are competing with Australia at all, right? Like when you actually like when you remove all the bluster and all the you know when you remove the, you know the, the fourteen from seventeen or whatever it is from there. From there, or eleven wins from fourteen, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, from the record, and you look, you actually go through the England team. It's like, okay, you've got a top three, none of whom really established in Test cricket. You've got a number five who's what, like seven tests in. You've got a number six who has one knee. 
You've got a number seven who, you know, had one leg until a few weeks ago. You've got a bowling attack that consists of, you know, a 36-year-old, a 40-year-old, um, uh, you know, a guy who bowls 124 kph nude nuts and a guy who hasn't taken, you know, 20 first-class wickets since since 2018 or whatever it is. Um, and yet they're going toe-to-toe with an Australian lineup with, you know, like an, a bowling attack that is basically all Australia greats, uh, an all-time great in, in Steve Smith, you know, David Warner, Marlis Labuschain, Travis Hedden has been acquired two of the most informed bats on the planet, Cameron mm. Green, the next Jack Callis. You know, when when you when you you know when when you brought it down like that, England shouldn't be competing. And yeah, yet I agree. They're talking the fact that they are talking as if they are favourites and as if they are dominating is the reason they're getting even close, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. Um cricket is on the front pages again today, but not for the right reasons, as is so often the case. Uh, the long-anticipated report from the Independent Commission for Equity in Cricket has released an extremely thorough report that concludes that English cricket suffers from widespread and deep-rooted racism, sexism, elitism and class-based discrimination at all levels of the game and urgently needs reform. The report was chaired by Sidney Butts and the committee included former England and Surrey all-rounder Zafar Ansari. It made 44 recommendations to English cricket, including that the ECB should apologise for their past wrongdoings. Um, I guess I was uh, pleasantly surprised on how specific and wide-reaching the recommendations were. Uh, it calls for equal pay between the men's and women's game, providing a workable timeline, and it's very specific about how that can be achieved. Um, there's a call for the Harrow-Eaton match to no longer take place at Lords and instead be replaced by a national state school's final day. Um, the document is entitled um, Holding Up a Mirror to Cricket, which I think is appropriate. Um, there's a lot of ugliness that's just been allowed to linger without comment for years. And this report, Ben, rightfully highlights many, many issues, but crucially also suggests practical solutions. Yeah, look, it's, 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 it's yeah, so it's 317 pages. So haven't had time to read uh, every single one of those. Um, if, if, if you want to do it yourself, I'd say go to the icec.com slash report. Uh, and then you can go and read the full report. It's out there. It's publicly. And if you're going to skip to one bit, I'd say go to the recommendations because actually picking through those, you see some of the things that they would have uh, taken the ECB and cricket in general to task for. But yeah, I, I, I like the specificity of of a lot of the um, uh, the recommendations, uh, including say so the e- equal pay for 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 women and men. It says it says it specifically delineates like you know match fees straight away, uh, regional. Uh, in, in introducing rookie regional contracts get them on the same level as uh, men's county salaries and then eventually international and uh, f- salaries for men's and women to be the same by 2030 I think like that that's it's delineated clearly in what is an achievable but ambitious way which is exactly as it should be I also like the things that actually don't have not a fixed time frame but a fixed um, uh, that don't, don't have any sort of deadline when they'll be completed because they're necessarily on running Things that say that, you know, every three years, the ECB should deliver uh, a report into this and a report into that. And also, I like how much of it is focused on on class as well as on uh, race and gender. It it, uh, it recommends that say that the code of conduct is expanded beyond what are the current protected characteristics to include uh, class-based characteristics in particular. And that underlies a lot of the stuff, I guess, especially with, with, with some of the race stuff. There is certain aspects of it that are also about just... Um, access into the game as well uh so yeah it's it's you know it's 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 a really really thorough piece of work 
um, if you go through those recommendations, you'll see actually that there are things that, you know, within years, the ECB needs to do, things that the ECB needs to do immediately, and also crucially things the ECB needs to do within the next few months. And those will be the things that if the ECB aren't doing those, then that'll be the time where you can hold the ECB up again and then again and again kind of thing. Mm. So this is, I think we said it when the, you know, the CDC, and actually there are recommendations about the CDC as well, about how that can be um, reformed. But after those hearings, uh, when there was so much focus on, on Michael Vaughan and what he might or might not have said. And it felt like, you know, we're getting hopelessly lost among uh, among the weeds of something that in the end for, you know, for the rejuvenation the, and the life of English cricket going forward kind of didn't matter, I guess, um, whether, you know, one man had said something a bit a bit iffy at one point. Um, this is this this doesn't avoid the, the details at all. You know, it's it's completely thorough, but equally it gives, you know, this there is a path forward from this document as much as there is so so much work that that needs to be done um as it lines out mm. and i guess in a society that has um that, that battles sexism racism elitism uh across society the report does actually specifically look at examples where cricket has, has particularly failed so i think in reports like this in the past you can sometimes make the accusation that hang on are you really separating the organisation, institution from wider societal problems. I think in this case, it does actually show where cricket has been particularly poor. Yeah, and th- there's also a way that that kind of, you know, it's a society problem can be used to excuse things at certain times. Like there is still individual responsibility just because society is, you know, you know, it makes it easy to be a certain way. It doesn't mean that people have to act in that certain way and people will still be doing things that they know that are wrong or should, or should realise that are wrong. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and, and going through the recommendations, as, as I say, like, even if there is yet yeah, all, all of those are things that cricket can and should just do basically. And that's, I mean, you know, hopefully there will be some change to wider society, uh, <laughs> within the next seven years as well. But these are things that w- is, are within cricket's control that aren't dependent on, you know, on more general attitudes changing they, these things, they, they should just be able to to do and put in place and if they mm. do then you know maybe we'll reach the sport that we can be you know proud to to play in and work in and and watch and enjoy i guess uh, we are all understandably getting more concerned about cybercrime, with the stealing of private data and invasion of privacy becoming commonplace these days nord vpn offers you sound protection from cybercrime. grab your exclusive nord vpn deal by going to nordvpn.com forward slash wisdom to get a huge discount off your nord vpn plan plus four additional months for free it's completely risk-free with nord's 30-day money-back guarantee the cricket world cup qualifier has thrown out the biggest story in world cricket this week west indies are on the brink of elimination from the tournament even a 100 record from here could see them not make the world cup in India later this year. I spoke to Santoki from the excellent Caribbean cricket podcast about what has gone wrong for West Indies. I'm joined by Santoki from the Caribbean cricket podcast. Santoki, first off, 20 or so hours after the occasion, West Indies aren't quite out of the qualifier just yet. It's not looking good though. How are you feeling? To be honest, yes, I'm still trying to process what was an unbelievable loss for um, West Indies. I mean, if you post 374, generally, I mean, I think the only time a team have posted an, a higher amount in an ODI and gone on to lost was the famous South Africa-Australia ODI, which is also like an anomaly in ODI cricket. So to post 374 and end up losing 
not only losing in the manner of going to a super over and then losing a big blow for West Indies cricket. And I kind of draw back to, there was a moment, you might have seen it, it went viral about two years ago after we lost an ODI series to uh, Ireland. And a local fan called up a TV show, Sports Max in the Caribbean, and said, we should rip up all the cricket pitches in the Caribbean and plant ganja and cassava. West Indies cricket is a waste of time. And I feel that perfectly sums up the collective mood of fans across the Caribbean this morning. Um, Netherlands are without several first-team players who are playing county cricket at the moment. I mean, f- before we get into the wider problems around West Indies cricket, this West Indies side is is much, much stronger than the Netherlands side that was that, that, that played yesterday. What went wrong for West Indies in that particular match, do you think? I think um, it was sort of... Um, it's, it's reflective of West Indies' current state in ODI cricket in terms of they sort of lost their heads towards the end of the game. The pressure got to them. And we've seen it not only in this tournament, for the past few years, when it's come down to a high-pressure situation, no one is able to really stand up and, you know, um, adapt to that pressure. Um, there were some small things we could have changed in the match. For instance, bowling Roston Chase in the penultimate over. In that situation, when you've got Van Beek in the form he is, do you really want to bring an off-spinner into the equation? And 21 went off his over. Um, the fact we managed to bring it back because Netherlands did only need four off four balls at one point to win. We brought it back to a super over. You thought that would have been a wake up call for the side. However, Jason Holder coming out to bowl the super over. I mean, hindsight's a lovely thing, but it, it was a questionable choice, especially with Alzari Joseph in the form he's in. You would have thought it would have been logical for him to come on. I don't know if it was a case of him being blown out essentially by bowling that final over. So they went with Holder. Holder, who was disciplined throughout the game, um, Terrible super over, bowled a lot of full tosses, missed his line and length a lot of times. And again, that's the pressure telling on him. And then the, coming out to bat, I mean, we needed 31 to uh, win. You essentially needed someone to do a Yuvaraj thing and hit six sixes. Johnson Charles was a logical choice, but Shai Hope, I still don't understand why Shai Hope came out to uh, bat in that super over. He's the captain. He obviously made the decision. But when you've got, you know, Jason Holder, Kia Lassane, Kimo Paul, Brandon King, who can all smash sixes across the park. I just don't understand why they went with Shy Hope. So, I mean, it is, as I said, it's reflective of a longer-term issue in West Indies cricket. But even within the match, there were small things that could have been done differently. And I haven't even mentioned the fielding. Um, in the tournament, probably West Indies have been the worst side in terms of dropping catches and poor fielding. And this just shows a lack of mental fortitude. And I just don't know. Um, you mentioned about Netherlands missing players and being an associate side. I just don't know if it's also complacency. I mean, the West Indies side, the fact that they are West Indies relying on that legacy and heritage to sort of carry them through, which happened in the last qualifying tournament in uh, 2018 in Zimbabwe. Mm. I mean, I think for people who don't follow this competition that closely, I, I think it's important for them to realise just how cutthroat these qualifying competitions are. The one in Zimbabwe in 2018 was was similarly cutthroat. There's very little room for error. I mean, West Indies were very close to not qualifying for the 2019 World Cup as well. I mean, just just hearing you speak, it kind of sounds like everything that could have gone wrong, has gone wrong. So some, to someone who ha- who doesn't follow West Indies that closely, they might look at the team sheet and go, yeah, that, that's pretty strong, but but where's someone like Hetmeyer? Can you give like a bit of background to why, I guess, the best 11 available West Indies cricketers aren't playing for West Indies in a match that is, is so important? Well, I think, yeah, this is, this is also another thing. I guess the problem for West Indies is, I mean, it would be great to say, um, after this tournament, oh, we, we, we're missing a lot of players who can come in and sort of rejuvenate the side. But the matter of fact is, you mentioned Hetmeyer, that's one player. 
potentially Evan Lewis as well. But other than that, 90% of this side are the best white ball players in the region. So you've essentially got a team that's come together. You know, we've seen what Poran can do in the IPL. We've seen Carl Mayers, Azari, Joseph, talented players. However, it's more to do with the structural issues with West Indies cricket. I feel in the past when we've had, we've had structural issues, but the likes of Gail, Pollard, DJ Barvo, they've been generational talents who could kind of rise above um, in spite of the structural challenges. Whereas this side, they're potentially, they're not great players, but they're very good players. And I think that difference has counted a lot in terms of the structural issues affecting them. Um, in regards to Shimron Hetmeyer, he hasn't played ODI cricket since 2021. He uh, famously missed the T20 World Cup last year. Um, for missing a plane. <laughs> he couldn't get on the plane uh, to Australia. So he's someone I don't know if we'll see him in West Indies colours anytime soon. Evan Lewis as well. Um, we asked Desmond Haynes in a press conference, where is Evan Lewis? The answer was he's currently working on his house. He's got a few things to do <laughs> fixing his house. He'll be back in September. So <laughs> Evan Lewis obviously has bigger priorities uh, than the World Cup qualifying tournament. So those two players aside, I would say generally this is the best side West Indies could probably have relied on. Um, we were unfortunate that the leg spinner Yannick Carey was injured in the training sessions before the tournament. We missed him. But generally a massive concern for West Indies is if these are the best players, generally speaking, that we have, is it just a case of the talent not being good enough at the moment in the Caribbean? What, what do you think that not qualifying for the World Cup, what does that mean for West Indies cricket? Is this basically as, as low as it gets? Like what 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 happens next? Like you, people think of World Cups and Australia is probably the first team you think of. But second is West Indies. Only Australia have won the World Cup more times than they obviously won the first two in the 70s. But, you know, just a colossal figure in the world game. It, it won't feel like a World Cup without West Indies being there. So that's how the rest of the world feels. What, what would it feel like in the West Indies, do you think? Massive, massive. I mean, um, as you said, I mean, so last year we didn't qualify for the T20 main draw. We went out in the first round. However, as you said, I think the T20 World Cup doesn't have that legacy and heritage. Um, the ODI World Cup is still the pinnacle. When you say World Cup, people think of the ODI World Cup. And as you mentioned, we won the first two editions, 75 and 79. So I think for fans, the symbolism of not qualifying for the pinnacle tournament in, in white ball cricket is going to be massive. Um, we spoke on the Caribbean Cricket Podcast to Dr. Kishore Shallow, the new, uh, the new Cricket West Indies president, who's obviously got a massive job on his hands. And he said to us, West Indies have to qualify for this tournament in um, India. There's no two ways about it. The players know the assignment. Darren Sammy knows the assignment. So there's going to be a massive, massive fallout from this. And if, I mean, it's likely we're not going to qualify for the World Cup, You'd imagine Davin Sammy, who's emphasised a lot in the past few games, he inherited this side. He didn't pick it. He's essentially going to try and do a reset um, on this white ball side to try and galvanise them. But as I said, with the lack of with the lack of talent pool we have, I don't know how big a reset you can do to change the fortunes of West Indies cricket. Mm. I guess that, that that's something that if you if you look at West Indies compared to the other big nations, something that sticks out is actually how few young players are playing for West Indies at the moment. So that if you go by like the metric of uh, guys under the age of 24 who play internationally. Obviously, you've got Seals, who's brilliant, um, but is a bowler. But there, there really isn't that much batting coming through. What's changed over the last 15 years has meant that West Indies just isn't producing the same volume of top-tier batters, do you think? I think it, it's a lack of opportunities. We only have six uh, franchise sides in our regional game. And they obviously each... Uh, the, the unusual thing with West Indies cricket is it's not like England where counties are have kind of a longer term goal of producing for England, there's nationalism in the West Indies. So Trinidad and Tobago will want to win the regional tournament for Trinidad and Tobago pride. Same with Guyana, same with Jamaica. So rather than looking long term towards developing young players, they pick the best players there and now 
who can win short term. And this obviously has a role on, on effect for West Indies cricket because players in the side who we talk about as quote-unquote young, Hetmeyer, Puran, they're 26, 27 years old. As you said, we don't really have anyone coming through. And that's a wider issue in terms of how do you resolve that issue? What incentive do you provide to local um, regional sides to you know, input that youth development? Hmm. I mean, you said you had a you had a chat with a with a new president. If you were in charge of West Indies cricket, what what would you do? What would it, what would be the first thing on your list of, of things to address in terms of um, changing that structure to to kind of avoid situations like this potentially coming up in the future? I'd uh, I'd rip up all the cricket fields and start planting Andrew <laughs> Kazava. <laughs> um, I think you have to have you have to. It's hard because. You can't. You have to have dialogue with the regional territorial boards, but at the same time, you don't have complete authority over them. You essentially have to work. So improving that communication, and in terms of looking directly at this ODI side, I think we're not going to qualify for the 2025 Champions Trophy in Pakistan because we're not in the top eight sides. So I think you just look at it as, as a four-year project. So does Darren Sammy start bringing players? We've got the West Indies Academy, who have done really well. Um, in the past year or so, do you just bring in a, a bulk of players from that academy, put them into the ODI side and say, listen, results, immediate results aren't expected, but you need that experience looking towards the 2027 ODI World Cup in uh, South Africa. Mm. Well, it's not over yet. It's, it's, <laughs> wor it's worth reiterating that. Um, but Santoki, so much so thank you so much for your time. And um, I guess a lot of cricket fans who aren't that invested in the qualifier will definitely be willing West Indies on from afar, um, given everything West Indies have done for world events over the last 30 or so years. Thank you very much. And, you know, if we do manage to do a miracle comeback and qualify for the World Cup, I'll be glad to come on and uh, present. it. <laughs> I'll be in a different frame of mind. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to it. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Ben, it is just worth dwelling on that game against the Netherlands. Uh, genuinely up there with one of the greatest ODIs of all time and one of the greatest ODI performances of all time from Logan Van Bake, who might not even be playing for the Netherlands by the time the World Cup comes comes along. Yeah, I, I don't really know where you start with this one, <laughs> which is which is ha how it is with all the best games, I guess. Um, start start with Van Bake. Yeah, okay, yeah. So for people who don't know what happened. So 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 when he comes in, actually, let, let me get the exact score up because I think it is worth just giving people, because you, you can sort of say the uh, the details quite generally. So he, he comes in at number eight, and it's about at this point when you think Netherlands have lost the game. Uh, so Tejan Nidamanuru, who did, he's actually got form for this. He made 100 at number seven to win a game off the last ball against Zimbabwe earlier this year. They've, they've, Netherlands don't, don't do things the easy way. Uh, but he'd fallen along with um, uh, the number, number seven inside the 46 over. And at that point, Netherlands need, uh, what, 50, just under 50 off the last four overs, and it's the tail in there. So you're like, okay. They, they did close. They've made a new, they're already at that point, 327. That was a new uh, Netherlands record score. You know, they've done pretty well, but that's the game done. Then Logan van Bake from nowhere uh, takes on the, the, the 19th over in particular off, off, uh, off Ross and Chase, I think. Mm, uh, it was, he, yeah. Yeah, he, 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 ta he takes that apart. Um, and all of a sudden, getting to the last over, they need nine off nine. And you're like, how has this happened? Then it's four, uh, nine off five, nine off six, sorry. It's four of the first ball, five or five. And then because they're in with the tartar chance, it tightens up again. There's a there's a single. There's a wicket. They run a bye. They somehow scramble a two. And then off the last off. So firstly off the two, there's a check for a one short, which is found to be legal. And then off the last ball, there's a brilliant catch position holder. But also the, the just the tiniest part of the heel is behind the line and no ball check. You can be looking at it for absolutely ages and convince yourself either way. I think it's probably a fair enough call from the umpire. But it's absolutely brilliant. But the Netherlands have tied it, and it's in the you know the rules. That it's a super over, so uh, it has to be that. 
And then Netherlands choose to send out, not, you know, their opener's got them off to, you know, score smash 70 inside the power play. Don't go with one of them. Uh, don't have the guy take strikers, you know, scored 111 off 76. They send out Van Beek again to take strike against Jason Holder, you know, one of the premier rounders in world cricket. And he goes 4-6, 30 runs, the most anyone has scored uh, off a super over in international cricket. And they're like, well, you know, <laughs> this guy's on, on a hot streak in the form of his life. Why not let's give him the ball? Comes out, okay, goes for six with the first and then single, single, wicket, wicket, game done. Uh, but like up until that point in the game before the last four overs, it'd take 177 and then just becomes, you know, Don Bradman, Gary Sobers, A.B. de Villiers all in one <laughs> for, for about 20 minutes Jasper of his life. Boomer. Yeah, uh, and 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 wins in the game. It's absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, especially yeah. With, with all the players they're missing as well. Yeah, well, yeah, because there's uh, this issue. There's, you know, in counter cricket, there's supposed to be what they call mandatory release. Um, where counties aren't allowed to hold players back from international cricket in theory, in effect, in reality, that's not really how it works because the players themselves basically choose to stay behind. Um, sometimes that'll be with a bit of a, a quiet word from a county. Mm. Sometimes it won't be. They'll just know that if they you know, forego uh, a bit of the T20 blast and they'd be mu- that much less likely to, to get the contract next year. But yeah, Netherlands have done this without some of their best players, which is a which is extraordinary. Mm. Um, also, one more stat, by the way. Uh, I saw that in, in the 13,000 list day games that have ever been played, this is the highest scoring tie there has ever been. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, Katia, Ireland have been knocked out after defeats to Oman, Scotland and Sri Lanka um, for a full member nation to not even make the super sixes from which the top two teams qualify for the World Cup. That That is a real, real shocker almost for Ireland, who actually came pretty close to... Uh, qualifying for the World Cup through the World Cup Super League. Yeah, they they were in it right to the end, weren't they? They had those ODIs against Sri Lanka at Chelmsford, where they could have Bangladesh, sorry, at Chelmsford, where they they could have qualified for the for the tournament automatically. Um, and it's really not great for Ireland cricket to not be at that World Cup anyway, but to not qualify for the Super Sixes is is pretty pretty difficult day. Um, I think it was that game against Scotland that they they really came undone. They lost it by by one wicket pretty much off the last ball. Um, And when you are on the wrong side of a result like that, that could have could have helped them get through the super sixes, then then that's not 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 um, not a great a great look for them. Um, And especially losing against two non full member sides is not a great tournament to have. Um, I'm sure Josh Little is thrilled with his decision to miss the Lord's Test match in order to crash out of the World Cup qualifier. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's really difficult and it, it feels like quite difficult to see a path going forward for where cricket in Ireland is, is, is going. Because, you know, to have that Test match at Lord's against England and all that kind of stuff and then months later to not, not even months later, sorry, weeks later, to, to not qualify for a World Cup is a pretty, pretty difficult um, paradox to, mm. to unpick. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what the path is forward for them, but it's a pretty difficult time, I think, at the minute. Um, in the county game, Middlesex completed their the highest ever chase in a domestic T20 game, uh, hauling down Surrey's 252 at the Kia Oval. Stevie Eskenazi hit 73 off 39, and Max Holden smashed 68 off 35 to take Middlesex over the line to end a really grim run of form. So they've only, that's their only win in 12 in the blast this season. Will Jacks came very close to hitting six sixes in and over earlier in the game. He hit Luke Holman for five in a row and then was gifted a filthy full toss off the sixth ball, but could only clop it for one. 
Um, the county championship is back this week. It's the first of two rounds where the Kookaburra ball will be used. The idea is that the Kookaburra moves less uh, and for shorter periods than the Duke's ball. Um, kind of hard to come to too many conclusions from just a day's play so far because the other big changeable to um, the county cricket played earlier in the summer is that it's hot and it's not April. Um a few headlines from uh, the county game. Sam Billings has resigned as Kent's Red Bull captain after a, a grim run of sco- scores with a bat. He's averaging less than 10 this year. Spinners are going all over the place. Don Bess has joined Warwickshire on loan from War- from Yorkshire. Dan Moriarty has joined Yorkshire on loan from Surrey. And Matt Parkinson, who's joining Kent next year, has gone on loan to Durham. Um, so loads going on there. Um, we also had Leicestershire, right? Leicestershire. Yes. The, the exodus of, of three key players there, Colin Ackerman, uh, Chris Wright and Callum Parkinson. Um, big some week those, in the Parkinson household. Yeah, yeah, um, big, yeah. Big, big. The, the Parkinson one is understandable, right? Like he, he is one of the best Red Bull spinners in the country. He should be playing Div 1 cricket and pushing for, you know, uh, a place in, in England test squads at some point. Um, the others, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're jobbing county cricketers. That those Those are really big losses. Those are players that Leicester have just kind of have let go to an extent and Paul Nixon the head coach has been placed on gardening leave and it seems likely to leave the club at the end of the season and I think there'll be more to come out there but especially because yeah. they're actually doing okay in the championship mm. so it, it, this, is, this is one of their best seasons in a while in Red Bull cricket um, so yeah that's a, that's a big story to follow and finally Ben to finish the show India have named a test squad for the upcoming tour of West Indies um, we, I guess we wouldn't normally spend two minutes on an India test squad for um a bilateral series, but it's a very interesting one, actually. No Cheteshwar Pajara. Ajinkya Rahane has been promoted to vice-captain uh, short, but only a couple of tests after he was recalled and, and Virat Kohli has been retained. It's interesting, I guess, because those three guys have done very similarly over the last few years and are of very similar age. Yeah, and actually, I think if you'd look just at the last few years, Pajara would be the one who had done the best because in that average of 29, he had that actually that brilliant series in Australia where he faced about a thousand balls but still averaged 29 because he was just defying Pat Cummins over and over again so if you're picking out a guy who okay that's a long time ago but equally it's a long time ago when any of them have done anything that's substantial I think that shows maybe this is more of a, a transition thing than a form thing they've picked Yashasvi Jaiswal in the squad who I think they think is best at number three or at least him and Shubman Gill are both top three options whichever way they end up and so that's why I guess it's Pajara that might have had to to move out and then also there's actually changes in the scene ball department as well so there's no Mishadov in that squad Shami it seems maybe maybe rested or maybe it's sort of a, a James Anderson broad uh, esque for the West Indies you know give the uh, give the big guys a bit of a kick but then it, it's just interesting looking at that scene ball attack as it is it is just it is just light on players who you're looking at to be world beaters I think when India won that series in 2020 21 in Australia with you know their whole first team out basically you're at that point thinking okay India are about to start uh, dominating world cricket in a way that we kind of haven't seen before. Like they've got so much strength and depth. They're just that like they've got players coming out of their ears. They'll be absolutely like they're absolutely stacked. And yet those guys haven't really kicked on. It's, it's hard to see what the Indian seam attack will be in a few years time. And if that seam attack will be able to do what Bumrah uh, and Shami have done in England and South Africa mm. and Australia. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's interesting times for Indian cricket. And uh, and still more transition to go yet, even though it's started, it seems. Mm. Well, that's it for today's show. Cheers, Katia. Cheers, Ben. We'll be back for our first Lord's Daily show tomorrow evening. Hi, I'm Kumar Sangakara and I'm speaking to you from the Kia Oval. 
Hello to all parents of young cricket fans. If you are 11 to 16 years old or if you are a parent of an 11 to 16 year old, then this message is for you. As part of the partnership between Surrey County Cricket Club and Kia, this amazing opportunity has been created to motivate and excite you, cricket's next generation. This is your chance as a young cricketer to play here on the hallowed green of the Kia Oval where I spent some great years playing for Surrey in the sport that I love so much. You could be here at a coaching session with me on Saturday, September the 23rd before playing out there on the field courtesy of Kia who have sponsored this club and ground for over a decade. Cricket has been a huge part of my life since I was a little boy from the age of about 11 or 12 and I know what an opportunity like this would have meant to me. If you want the chance to be part of this, all you need to do is apply and we might see each other in September.